Howdy everybody. The following common law lesson is brought to you by Republic Keepers, where we learn to inform, to educate, defend, and to self-govern. Please visit the website at www.republickeepers.com. Today's discussion is lesson three in our jury training educational series. Hope you enjoy. Okay, it's uh, March 23, 2001, and we're in chapter two of the jury training that and the writing is by Lysander Spooner. This is the trial by jury as defined by the Magna Carta. That the trial by jury is all that has been claimed for it in the preceding chapter is proved both by the history and the language of the Great Charter of English Liberties to which we are to look for a true definition of the trial by jury, and of which the guarantee for that trial is the vital and most memorable part. <clears throat> Section 1. The History of the Magna Carta. Someone is breathing awfully close to the microphone. It may have to shift the mic just a little. I don't hear it now. Section 1, the history of the Magna Carta. In order to judge the object and the meaning of the chapter of Magna Carta, which secures the trial by jury, it is to be borne in mind that at the time of Magna Carta, the king, with exceptions immaterial to this discussion, but which will appear hereafter, was constitutionally the entire government, the sole legislature, judicial, and executive power of the nation. The executive and judicial officers were merely his servants, appointed by him and removable at his pleasure. In addition to this, the king himself often sat in his court which always attended his person. He there heard causes and pronounced judgments, and though he was assisted by the advice of other members, it is not to be imagined that a decision could be obtained contrary to his inclination or opinion. <clears throat> Excuse me. That was from Hume and his appendix. Judges were in those days and, and afterward such abject servants of the king that we find that King Edward I, 1272 to 1307, fined and imprisoned his judges in the same manner as Alfred the Great among the Saxons. Six. 
simply advising the king to which their assent was constitutional military for extraordinary occasions. Magna Carta itself makes no provisions whatever for any parliaments, except when the king should want means to carry on more or to meet some other extraordinary necessity. <clears throat> he had no need of parliaments to raise taxes for the ordinary purposes of government, for his revenues from the rents of the crown lands and other sources were ample for all except extraordinary occasions. Parliaments, too, when assembled, consisted only of bishops, barons, and other great men of the kingdom unless the king chose to invite others. There was no House of Commons at that time, and the people had no right to be heard unless as petitioners. Even when laws were made at the time of a parliament, they were made in the name of the king alone. Sometimes it was inserted in the laws that they were made with the consent or advice of the bishops, barons, and others assembled, but often this was omitted. Their consent or advice was evidently a matter of no legal importance to the enactment or validity of the laws, but only inserted, when inserted at all, with a view of obtaining a more willing submission to them on the part of the people. The style of enactment generally was either the king wills and commands or some other form significant of the sole legislative authority of the king. The king could pass laws at any time when it pleased him. The presence of a parliament was wholly unnecessary. Hume says, It is asserted by Sir Henry Harry Spellman as an undoubted fact that during the reigns of the Norman princes, every order of the king issued with the consent of his privy council had the full force of law and other authorities abundantly corroborate this assertion. The king was therefore constitutionally the government, and the only legal limitation upon his power seems to have been simply the common law, usually called the law of the land, which he was bound by oath to maintain, which oath had about the same practical value as similar oaths have always had. This law of the land seems not to have been regarded at all by many of the kings, except so far as they found it convenient to do so, or were constrained to observe it by the fear of arousing resistance. But as all people are slow in making resistance, oppression and usurpation often reached a great height. And in the case of John, they had become so intolerable as to enlist the nation almost universally against him. And he was reduced to the necessity of complying with any terms the barons saw fit to dictate to him. 
It was under these circumstances that the Great Charter of English Liberties was granted. The barons of England, sustained by the common people, having their king in their power, compelled him, as the price of his throne, to pledge himself that he would punish no free man for a violation of any of his laws unless with the consent of the peers, that is, the equals of the accused. The question here arises whether the barons and people intended that those peers, that is the jury, should be mere puppets in the hand of the king, exercising no opinion of their own as to the intrinsic merits of the accusations they should try, or the justice of the laws they should be called on to enforce. Whether these haughty and victorious barons, when they had their tyrant king at their feet, gave back to him his throne with full power to enact any tyrannical laws he might please, reserving only to a jury the country the contemptible and servile privilege of ascertaining under the dictation of the king or his judges as to the laws of evidence, the simple fact whether those laws had been transgressed. Was this the only restraint which, when they had all power in their hands, they placed upon the tyranny of a king whose oppression they had risen in arms to resist? Was it to obtain such a charter as that, that the whole nation had united, as it were, like one man against their king? Was it on such a charter that they intended to rely for all future time for the security of their liberties? No. They were engaged in no such senseless work as that. On the contrary, when they required him to renounce forever the power to punch any, punish any free man unless by the consent of his peers, they intended those peers to judge of and try the whole case on its merits independently of all arbitrary legislation or judicial authority on the part of the king. In this way, they took the liberties of each individual and thus the liberties of the whole people entirely out of the hands of the king and out of the power of his laws and placed him in the keeping of the people themselves. And this it was that made the trial by jury the palladium of their liberties. The trial by jury, be it observed, was the only real barrier interposed by them against absolute despotism. Could this trial then have been such an entire farce as it necessarily must have been if the jury had no power to judge of the justice of the laws the people were required to obey? Did it not rather imply that the jury were to judge independently and fearlessly as to everything involved in the charge, and especially as to its intrinsic justice and thereon give their decision, unbiased by any legislation of the king, whether the accused might be punished? The reason of the thing, no less than the historical celebrity of the events, as securing the liberties of the people, 
and the veneration with which the trial by jury has continued to be regarded, notwithstanding its essence and vitality, have been almost entirely extracted from it in practice, would settle the question if other evidence had left the matter in doubt. Besides, if his laws were to be authoritative with the jury, why should John indignantly refuse, as at first he did, to grant the charter, <clears throat> and finally, grant it only when brought to the last extremity, on the ground that it deprived him of all power and left him only the name of a king. He evidently understood that the juries were to veto his laws and paralyze his power at discretion by forming their own opinions as to the true character of the offenses they were to try and the laws they were to be called on to enforce, and that the king wills and commands was to have no weight with them contrary to their own judgments of what was intrinsically right. These things show that the nature and effect of the charter were well understood by the king and his friends, that they all agreed that he was effectively stripped of power. Yet the legislative power had not been taken from him, but only the power to enforce his laws unless juries should freely consent to their enforcement. The barons and people, having obtained by the charter all the liberties they had demanded of the king, it was further provided by the charter itself that 25 barons should be appointed by the barons out of their number to keep special vigilance in the kingdom to see that the charter was observed with authority to make war upon the king in case of its violation. The king also, by the charter, so far absolved all the people of the kingdom from their allegiance to him as to authorize and require them to swear to obey the 25 barons in case they should make war upon the king for infringement of the charter. It was then thought by the barons and people that something substantial had been done for the security of their liberties. This charter, in its most essential features and without any abatement as to the trial by jury, has since been confirmed more than 30 times, and the people of England have always had a traditionary idea that it was of some value as a guarantee against oppression. Yet that idea has been an entire delusion, unless the jury have had the right to judge of the justice of the laws they were called on to enforce. <clears throat> the language of the Magna Carta. You can see I'm good at using this scroller.
It is super sensitive. The language of the Great Charter establishes the same point that is established by its history. That is, that it is the right and duty of the jury to judge of the justice of the laws. The chapter guaranteeing the trial by jury is in these words. <laughs> I'm not sure I want to really read them directly. This is a Latin paragraph. Nullus liber homo capitiar capiatur vel imprigionatur. I am not going to attempt to read that. The laws were at that time all written in Latin in the fashion of the church. The corresponding chapter in the Great Charter granted by Henry III, 1225, and confirmed by Edward I, 1297, which charter is now considered the basis of the English laws and constitution, is in nearly the same words. The most common translation of these words at the present day is as follows. No free man shall be arrested or imprisoned or deprived of his freehold or his liberties or free customs or outlawed or exiled or in any manner destroyed. Nor will we, that is the kings, pass upon him nor condemn him unless by the judgment of his peers or the law of the land. There's another Latin expression here. There has been much confusion and doubt as to the true meaning of the words nec super iam ibimus, nec super iam mitimus. The more common rendering has been, nor will we pass upon him nor condemn him. But some have translated them to mean, nor will we pass on him, nor commit him to prison. Coke, who is a great writer of the common law maxims, gives still a different rendering as to the effect that no man shall be condemned at the king's suit, either before the king and his bench nor before any other commissioner or judge whatsoever. But all these translations are clearly erroneous. In the first place, nor will we pass upon him, meaning thereby to decide upon his guilt or innocence, judicially is not a correct rendering of the words nec super iam ibimus. There is nothing whatever in these latter words that indicates judicial action or opinion at all. The words in their common signification describe physical action alone. And the true translation of them, as will hereinafter be seen, is, nor will we proceed against him executively. In the second place, the rendering, nor will we condemn him, bears little or no allowed analogy to any common or even uncommon signification of the word nec super eimitimus. There is nothing in these latter words that indicates 
judicial action or decision. They're common signification, like that of the words nec super ibimus, describes physical actions alone. Nor will we sin upon or against him, would be the most obvious translation, is it? And as we shall hereafter see, such is the true translation. But all these, although these words describe physical action on the part of the king, as distinguished from judicial, they nevertheless do not mean, as one of the translations have it, nor will we commit him to prison. For that would be a mere repetition of what had been already declared by the words, Nick imprisonature, because there is nothing about sending him anywhere, but only against sending something or somebody upon him or against him. That is, executively. executively. Koch's rendering is, if possible, the most absurd and gratuitous of all. What is there in the words, Nick super emittimus, it must be made to me, nor shall we be shall we be contemned before any other commissioner or judge whatsoever. Clearly there's nothing. The whole rendering is a sheer fabrication. And the whole object object of it is to give color to the exercise of a judicial power by the king and his judges, which is nowhere given them. Neither the words nec super meum ebimus, nec super eemitimus, nor any other words in the whole chapter authorize, provide for, describe, or suggest any judicial action, action whatever on the part either of the king or of his judges or of anybody except the peers or jury. There is nothing about the king's judges at all. And there is nothing whatever in the whole chapter so far as relates to the action of the king that describes or suggests anything but executive action. But that all these translations are certainly erroneous is proved by the temporary charter granted by John a short time previous to the great charter for the purpose of giving an opportunity for conference, arbitration, and reconciliation between him and his parents. It was to have force until the matters in controversy between them could be submitted to the Pope and to other persons to be chose, some by the king, some by the barons. The words of the charter are as follows. Know that we have granted to our barons who are opposed to us that we will neither arrest them nor their men, nor to seize them, nor will we proceed against them by force or by arms until by the law of our kingdom or by the judgment of their peers in our court until consideration shall be had. <clears throat> A copy of this charter is given in a note in Blackstone's Introduction to the Charters. See Blackstone's Law Tracks, page 294, Oxford edition. Mr. Christian speaks of this charter 
as settling the true meaning of the corresponding clause of Magna Carta on the principle that laws and charters on the same subject are to be construed with reference to each other. The true meaning of the words, nec super eum evimus, nec super eum mitimus, is also provided by the Articles of the Great Charter of Liberties, demanded of the king by the barons and agreed to by the king under seal a few days before the date of the charter and from which the charter was framed. Here are the words used on those. And the English translation of the Latin shown here is, The body of a free man shall not be arrested, nor imprisoned, nor deceased, nor outlawed, nor exiled, nor in any manner destroyed, nor shall the king proceed or send anyone against him with force, unless by the judgment of his peers or the law of the land. The true translations of the word nec super eum ebumus, nec super eum mitimus, in Magna Carta is thus made certain as follows. Nor will we, the king, proceed against him, nor send anyone against him with force or arms. The words, we will not destroy him, nor will we do upon him, nor will we send upon him, have differently expounded by different legal authorities. Their real meaning may be learned from John himself, who the next year promised by his letters patent. Nec super eos prevail per arma evilus. Nor will we go upon them by force or by arms, unless by the law of our kingdom or the judgment of their peers in our court. He had hitherto been in the habit of going with an armed force or sending an armed force on the lands and against the castles of all whom he knew or suspected to be his secret enemies without observing any form of law. It is evident the difference between the true and false translation of the words nec super eum ebumus, nec super eum mitimus is of the highest legal importance inasmuch as the true translation nor will we the king proceed against him nor send anyone against him by force of arms represents the king only in an executive character. <clears throat> carrying the judgment of the peers and the law of the land into execution. Whereas the false translation, nor will we pass upon him nor condemn him, condemn him gives color for the exercise of a judicial power on the part of the king, to which the king had no right, but which according to the true translation belongs Holy to the jury. Another Latin phrase, per legal judicium parium suorum. The following interpretation is corroborated. If it were not already too plain to be susceptible of corroboration, 
by the true interpretation of the praise, per legale judicium parium suorum. In giving this interpretation, I leave out for the present the word legal, which shall be defined afterwards. The true meaning of this phrase is according is according to the sentence of his peers. The word judicium, judgment, has a technical meaning in the law, signifying the decree rendered in the decision of a cause. The civil suits, in civil suits, this decision is called a judgment. <clears throat> in chancery proceedings, it is called a decree. In criminal actions, it is called an action or judgment indifferently. Thus, in a criminal suit, a motion in arrest of judgment means a motion in arrest of sentence. In cases of sentence, therefore, in criminal suits, the word sentence and judgment are synonymous terms. They are to this day commonly used in the law books as synonymous terms, and the phrase per judicium parium suorum therefore implies that the jury are to fix the sentence. The word per means according to. Otherwise, there's no sense in the phrase per judicium parium suorum. There would be no sense in saying that the king might imprison these deeds, outlaw exiles, or otherwise punish a man, or proceed against him or send anyone against him by force of arms, by a judgment of his peers, but there is a sense in saying that the king may imprison, disease, and punish a man or proceed against him or send anyone against him by force of arms according to a judgment or sentence of his peers because in that case the king would be merely carrying the sentence or judgment of the peers into education, execution. The word per in the phrase per judicium parium swarm of course means precisely what it does in the next phrase, per legum terrae, where it is obvious where it obviously means according to and not by, as it is usually in translated. There would be no sense in saying that the king might proceed against a man by force of arms by the law of the land. But there is sense in saying that he may proceed against him by force of arms according to the law of the land because the king would then be acting only as an executive officer carrying the law of the land into execution. Indeed, the true meaning of the word by, as used in similar cases, now always is according to. As for example, when we say a thing was done by the government or by the executive by law, we mean only that it was done by them according to law. That is what they merely, that is, that they merely executed the law. 
Or if we say that the word by signifies by authority of, the result will still be the same. For nothing can be done by authority of law except what the law itself authorizes or directs to be done. That is, nothing can be done by authority of law except simply to carry the law itself into execution. So nothing could be done by authority of the sentence of the peers or by authority of the law of the land except when the sentence of the peers or the law of the land themselves authorized or directed to be done. Nothing, in short, but to carry the sentence of the peers or the law of the land themselves into execution. I am uh, going to stop there. How many minutes? We've gone quite a few minutes. And this is getting very, very heavy. I think we should read ahead for what we're going to be studying in these Latin areas because I am, it's not complicated. I think that what they're saying is um, correct, but I believe this document is in the form of a brief. It is designed to prevent, as many lawyers tend to do, rabbit trails. What about this case? What about that case? What about? And so there is an attempt to explain the alternatives so that you can arrive at one definition being able to discredit others. Um, any questions about this? If not, we'll just stop the recording. Okay. <laughs>